Hello, I'm Wendy Padbury. I played Zoe Herriot, and welcome to Who's on Target? Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. Podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelization. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and with a wheezing, groaning sound, We'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. A short drive through peacefully deserted countryside brought them to a high chain-link fence, slung between steel posts and topped with several strands of wicked-looking barbed wire stretching into the distance in both directions. Electric gates barred the road. A heavily armed security guard strode out from the squat concrete blockhouse. He was dressed in a black uniform of thick, glossy material, with gauntlets, high boots, and a ridged steel helmet incorporating a dark visor, beneath which only his thin-lipped mouth was visible. On the front of his helmet was a silver insignia representing a zigzag of lightning in the grip of a clenched glove. The guard's faceless mask bulbously reflected the driver's pale smile as he showed his pass. The guard stared into the cab and then marched round to look in the back. He glanced at the stacks of papier-mâché trays and slammed the doors. The gates whirred open and the truck drove through. It was barely out of sight before two similar guards riding huge motorcycles skidded to a stop just as the gates were closing. Jumping off, they ran towards the blockhouse, leaving the massive engines throbbing in anticipation. Huddled among the trays of eggs, the three friends heaved a sigh of relief at their narrow escape. But their euphoria was short-lived. After a few minutes, the truck shuddered to a halt again, and the driver's frightened grey eyes peered through the shutter from the cab. They're right behind us. Get out here, and you'll find the London Road about five kilometres due east, he shouted above the clattering diesel. Muttering their gratitude, the trio jumped out of the back and fought their way painfully through tall, prickly hedge, just as the two motorbikes roared round a bend and coasted up behind the truck. Led by the doctor, they set off for dear life across the fields, in search of the main road. What's that? Zoe gasped, as a dull thundering sound suddenly started up behind them. Don't even ask, panted the doctor without glancing round. I think it's a bull. One security guard searched the truck, while the other glanced cursorily at the driver's pass. You come back with us, he ordered. What for? The pass is okay, protested the driver. The other guard strode up, shaking his head. Nothing, he snapped. Turn round, rapped the first guard. The driver refused. You can't force me back into the compound. 
The next moment he flinched as a cold pistol barrel was shoved against his temple. We're not on international electromatics property now, he persisted, defiantly slipping the truck into gear. You've got no authority out here. The safety catch clicked off. You won't be arrested? You get the police, he shouted, revving the engine. The next moment, half the driver's head had been blown off, all over the inside of the cab. The truck lurched forward and then toppled sideways into the ditch. The stack of papier-mâché trays crashed through the open back doors and hundreds of vivid yellow egg yolks started merging and congealing on the hot black tar. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target, and this is Greg in Swansea. And Keith Michael in Norfolk. Brilliant. And this week, of course, we're looking at Doctor Who, The Invasion. Well, the title's changed. What do you want to call this, Michael? Well, The Invasion. The Invasion, because it is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this this isn't one of these ones where they called it Doctor Who and The Invasion. There's no and. No. No, you know, it's, you know they. I'm just looking at know, the, the Yeah, I'm just looking at the audio cover, and they've put um, Cybermen on it, haven't they? They called it Doctor Who Cybermen: The Invasion, which is. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's why. I, that's why I'm wondering what. Oh, well, uh, I'm just looking at my paperback here. So number ninety-eight on my paperback. Oh, nearly at the century then, so because it was quite. Um, do you want to say a little bit? About the book, because it's it's Iamata, but it's not one of the mm. ones which came out in the set. It came out quite late, I think, didn't it? Well, um, yeah, it must have been because the front cover is by Andrew Skinner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, so, and uh, I'll just have a look and see. Yeah, uh, this was published in nineteen eighty five. Yeah, Nin- on my reckoning. Oh, yeah, nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. Yeah, so we've, uh, yeah, so it's a long time after the original um, television broadcast, and um, I just, well, I have to say, you know, Iamata is right up there. He's one of my favourite uh, Doctor Who um, authors, and personally, I, I've never read this one before. You see, I've never read it, and. Um, I think at the time, Michael, I think I, I sent you a text. I was quite shocked by how... Yes. Yeah, it was. it's so violent. I was really shocked by the, you know. I, I thought it was fabulous, you know. I really like, but gosh, I didn't expect that. Did Had you read it before? Um. Yes, I have. Um, it's been a long time since I last read it, but yes, I have read it before. Um, and... You know, it is it is strikingly different from what you would usually expect from a target novelisation. Yes, that one. yes, absolutely, it is, isn't it? It's um, I've always 
like Diamata's work for he just goes into such fabulous descriptions. I mean, the part when the Cybermen come out later on in it and he's describing um, their, their oily reek of their breath coming out as they start walking. He's just really visual with it, isn't that's, he? That's something that he reprises in the novelization of Earthshock. Does he? Does he really? Yeah. I, d- yeah. I, I didn't know. Does he, he wrote the Earthshock novelization, did he? Yes, he did. Uh, I mean, I, I, as soon as you mentioned the oily breath, I, re- I, I remember reading Earthshock when, uh, you know, the cyber reader is confronting the doctor. And I remember the that mention of the oily breath. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really effective because it really... I, I just thought, you know, we, I always loved the the 70s ones and particularly Terence Dicks, you know. He was brilliant at, um, he just put a few, although he sort of got it going at a cracking pace, he would just drop these little bits of description in which really brought it home to you. But Ian Martin, I find he does it uh, much more intricately, if you like. You know, there's a lot more depth to it. And I, I found I, it was really... Um, Inspiring my imagination, I could really see those Cybermen marching through there and imagine them clunking. I mean, I don't know how close it was to the actual TV version in that sense. What What do you think? Well, I, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about prior to, to doing this podcast is yeah. that this is, if you think about it, there's been quite a few versions of the invasion. Right, go on, yeah, yeah. In that you had the televised version, yeah, which was complete. Yeah. When it was released on video, yeah. Um you had obviously um you had a couple of episodes missing, so you had linking narration by Nicholas Gordon. Right. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you had the DVD with the recon- animated uh, episodes. Yeah, that's the right. The reconstruction, if you will. Yeah. And this book by Ian Marta is, I believe, is based on the shooting script because it does feature a sequence that was not filmed. Ah, right. What What is that? What, what se- which sequence is that? And that, that is the rescue of Professor Watkins. Ah, right, right. That's with the gunfire, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, and, this is yeah. when, um, you know, um, they're going to, Tobias Vaughan, he, he wants Professor Watkins transported or transferred to another location. So, yeah. and this is when, you know, the doctor's like, we need Professor Watkins. Yes, yeah. And this is when, uh, you know, there's this ambush. So this is why I say we've got, there are, there are different versions of this story. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask, you said you haven't read it in a long time. Because th- this has come as mm. a b- big surprise to me, this one. Um, because I loved this um version and the audio one, which we'll talk about in a minute. I loved it so much that I, I mm. dug out my... Um, 
Invasion DVD and I was surprised by how far back it is in the cupboard because it's actually over 10 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, it's over 10 years mm. ago since it... Um, but um, did you then read this novelisation when it came out or around that time? Um, yeah. Yeah, ah. I would have done. And another thought, I wonder if this was released in 1985. Because yeah. if I'm not mistaken, that was the... Was that the same year that Attack of the Cybermen was broadcast? Ah, I think it must have been. It must have been Peter Davison. And I'm thinking, was this done to tie in with that, perhaps? That's very interesting, actually, Michael, because Attack the Cybermen was really criticised for its some violent scenes, wasn't it? Well, not so much the violent scenes. That's not how I see it. But um, Attack of the Cybermen is a continuity fest. Yes. It does reference many... Cybermen stories. We've got um, the sewers as well in it, of course. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's my point. You know, the, the Cybermen skulking around in the sewers. Yeah, which is something that happens in this in, in the story in the invasion. That's really interesting. So I'm wondering if it was done to tie in. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about it, but that would make absolute perfect sense. The timing, the style, the you know the the, the continuity references. Yeah, that sounds very much like a, as a possibility. Uh, so, when you read this, thinking of the, it's quite a fairly mature writing style, I think, compared to some of the other mm-hmm. targets. Did you? So, yeah. were you you young when you read this, or? I would have been thirteen. Right, perfect, perfect age. Um, what did you think of it at the time of reading? Oh well, I, I think and I've been thinking about this. Bearing in mind what you said about how violent the book is, its yeah. tone, its, its maturity, if you will. And I'm wondering if any of our Sometimes I look at this, if, if Ian Martha was aware children who had started reading Target books had become older. Right. And perhaps he thought, well, maybe I should write for that older audience. That's, yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because... Or... Um, yeah. Or maybe he was just thinking, well, why... Should I, t- should I tone this down for children at the risk of patronising them? I don't think there's nothing in this that's explicit. It's not explicit in its violence. Not, I don't think so anyway. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you think about um, some of the books that are allegedly for children now. Yeah, yeah. I think... I, I, as I said, I, I text you um, because I was quite shocked. But I loved it, you know. I, I thought it was fabulous. Um, but yeah. I thought, well, that this, this is where we're at now. This is the level that's going to be going on. But actually, it gets more violent as the book goes on and quite intense. Um, I mean, the part where General Routledge is it General Routledge, yeah. He's forced to kill himself by Vaughan, isn't he? Vaughan um, has a div- the device which 
he makes him turn the gun on himself. It's really ghastly, you know. And he says about the blood spewing out of him. He stood there for a God, that's... What do you think of that, well, Is this because this is something that you can identify with in the real world rather than being suffocated by a plastic chair, for example? That's that's interesting. That's interesting. It could well be. I just think, I think it suits it and it's right. And I, I like the writer, but I'm just not quite used to that level of that. Yeah, I think you're right, actually, that type of, of violence. Because, yeah, you know, when you're talking about like the plastic chairs suffocating and things like that, it, it's more mm. sci-fi, isn't it? Whereas this is like, yeah. You know, I mean, it's quite interesting because I I, I listened to the audio a bit again um, mm. this week when um, uh, I think uh, we've just had released um, Hinkley, the guy who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan. And um, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. And they showed the footage of that, which um, I'd never seen before. And I, I put it did have a warning on the BBC site to say, you know, but. By golly, it was quite it's quite a nasty well, a very nasty, um unpleasant scene there which was going on with, with terribly that you know, a mm. lot of blood everywhere, very unpleasant and extremely realistic. Um of well obviously realistic. What I meant was is that the problem with this in the book? Because it is so realistic bearing in mind those images that we see in real life? Um, okay. Well, what I could say back at you is, I think Eric Sayward once said this, maybe even Tom Baker, show violence for what it is. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me throw this at you. Let me throw this at you. Yeah. Would you put an age restriction on this story. Ah, oh, now that that's something to ponder. Would I put an age restriction on it? Um, I don't think I would, but I would be possibly uncomfortable with a child under 10 reading this, maybe. I, I, I tell you why, I mean... I mean, my my son, when he was about 10 years old, I brought him home, um, James Bond, Dr. No. And he, yeah. oh, he, he, he lay in front of the fire the whole weekend and he could not stop reading. He, he loved it. You know, he's still a big James Bond fan now, but he, he loved this. And there's full of shooting, full of violence, but it, but it's mm-hmm. not portrayed in the in the Ian Fleming novels in this way, I don't think. You know, it's not so graphic and it's lots of people get shot, lots of people but here there's almost a bit of a bit of a bit of a delight in it really, I suppose. Well let me let me okay, so one thing that I that I find unusual about the invasion is that it is of, you know, it's referred to as a Cyberman story. Yeah. But we actually don't really play a great part in it no. until towards the latter stages of the story. Yeah. 
So you could almost you could almost say this isn't really a Cyberman story. Yeah. And you could almost call it it's not really a science fiction story. Very true. Very true. Yeah. It, it's more um there are elements of espionage in it. Yeah. But to me, it's... It's a difficult one to pin down, really. And that's not a negative thing, uh, you know, because you know that I, I love the invasion, this is my favourite Carlton story. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's really more about, you know, Tobias... Born, you know, the, the villain of the piece, if you will, is a bit of a megalomaniac. Yes, yeah. And, you know, in some respects, he, he, he could have been a James Bond villain, just calling back to what you were just talking about with James Bond. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he even looks like a James Bond villain. He does, actually, with that smart cut of suit with the, with the narrow lapels yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. And then, you know, speak, you know, let's talk about Tobias Vaughan because, um, he, I mean, he really is one of the great villains in Doctor Who, isn't he? He is. He's, he's a fabulous character in it, yeah. I, I, I love that characterization of him, yeah. Um, because uh, he, to me, he was a true, he was an equal for, for the Doctor. Yes, yeah. I think I don't really. In obviously, um, in the in the uh, TV story, uh, he was played by Kevin Stoney, who also played another memorable villain in Doctor Who, and that was Mavic Chen in the in the Dalek's Master Plan in the in the William Hartman era. Oh, right. Of course, I remember. Now you've said that. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that was also directed by uh, Douglas Canfield. Oh. I, I'll, I'll talk about his direction in a moment, but go, go on, Michael, yeah. So Kevin well, Stoney. you know, so it, it, the fact that, you know, Kevin Stoney played two of the best villains in Doctor Who's history. Yeah. I think that really says a lot. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's interesting. It's far more... This is what I... One of the things that really surprised me was... I couldn't have paid an awful lot of attention to it the first time I saw it many years ago um, on, on mm. video, I think, because um, I was just struck by, as I say, I, it made me dig the DVD out, and I think it's a fabulous story. It is so... Yeah. It's thrilling, the pacing is right, and UNIT really are um, a, a top-notch force, isn't it? It's really got that um, feel about it of seriousness, and well, uh, well, here's something else, Mike, because this is a landmark story. Yeah. Because it's the first appearance of Unit. Yeah, yes, yeah. And the second appearance of Lethbridge Stewart, who's now a brigadier. Yeah. And it's a completely different Lethbridge Stewart to what we saw in the Web of Fear. This, this, this Lethbridge Stewart is quite assured and he's quite confident. Yes. Um... And I think the thing is, this this unit seems very efficient. Yeah. But when they, but when they came uh, to play in the third Doctor's 
uh, era. Um, it's in quite a sharp contrast, isn't there? Yes, yeah. This is, this is a, um, a professional, serious yeah. unit in this, and it really yeah. comes across, yeah. And it's really thrilling. Well, it's kind of like, does, it does carry over in, in Pertwee's service, yeah. You know, they're still it's still quite serious, but I think I think after that, it's it becomes much more relaxed. Yeah, is that is that Derek Sherwin's um, influence there? Because he was still in charge of the first yeah. Spear, yeah. yeah spearhead from space, and uh, it's a great vision. It's for and and Patrick Troughton works wonderfully with with it. I think you know it's uh, it's just it's just a whole thrilling sleek setup. I was really impressed with it. I, I, I don't remember seeing Unit as um as exciting as that before. Well, I I suppose I suppose they had to make a good impression with them because, you know, they were they were kind of like I believe they were kind of like geared for them to carry over in a John Pertwee, weren't they? Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you know, and you, you, you know, but again, with Douglas Cranfield's military background, yes, yeah, you have got an air of authenticity about it. Oh, but if we're talking about, yeah, sorry, but if we're talking about how efficient unit are, yeah, well, we've got to talk about the other side. We've got to talk about Packer. Oh. Tobias Vaughan's right hand man. Yeah. Now, Packer. Now, yes, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. Packer. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you make of him? Yeah. Well, I thought, um, I, I love the guy. He certainly has got a touch of the comedic aspect about him. Well, well he, yeah. You know, I mean, he. it's interesting. Um, as as the listeners will know in the, in the earlier part of this episode, um, David um, thinks that Packer is a nasty bully, which he certainly is. But he is. He is. But there is a comical element there as well. Do you think so, Michael? Well, there is. I mean, he is. He. You don't have to kind of because like, let's face it, Tobias Vaughan. You do not mess with this guy. No, no, not at all. And you know, Packer, yeah. he 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 is a buffoon in this. Yes, to be honest, what? and you do have to kind of like think to yourself, um, is it because the doctor's running rings in left, right, and centre? Yeah. Um, because really, because based on what you see, you kind of I think why is Tobias Vaughan got him? Well, that those are the, in my head. I just had while you were saying that. Why does he? Why does Tobias Vaughan tolerate him? Why does he um, put up with yeah. there's something there? You know, which it makes me think maybe Packer has 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 reached his limit. Maybe with. Ordinary people in everyday things yeah. he can sort, but now yeah. he's he's losing it a bit, and I think uh, maybe he wouldn't have lasted much longer with with Tobias. Well, Kingdom. no, probably not. Yeah, probably yeah. not. But he's um, I do like Packer. I mean, you, you know, and uh, 
he's a lovely character. I mean, you know, I mean, it's fun. you know, considering he's a bad guy. I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like sad when you go into the dust. To be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I think this is the beauty of this. Um, I say novelization, but of course, script as well. Um, it's mm. full of good characters. Everybody's got a good. Pa- I noticed. Yeah. I notice even in the the novelization is there's, there's that famous scene in there with, with Isabel, which seems all they always troll it out as being an example of Doctor Who and it was being really sexist and patronizing. Yeah, yeah, but it's handled a bit better in the in this version. I think it's not quite so um, so bad. They they've made it look a little better. Do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, yeah, I think. You've got you've got to accept that the sixties were a very different time. Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. You know, and I I think the important thing is that Ian Marta I I think he acknowledged his sister, but not to the point where he's he's altering it for the sake of pleasing the PC community. Yes, it's still there. It's there, but it's just just toned a little bit away. I mean, I think she just comes across as not not quite the sort of victim of sexism. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, I mean, she's uh, she. I mean, she comes across um, you know pretty well in this. I think I, I I really like all the characterizations. Sergeant Benton is he a sergeant mm. yet? Yeah, I think he's a sergeant, isn't he? Um... He might be a corporal. Corporal, corporal. No. I can't remember. Well, he's here. He's, he's, he's here, here, but he's... And he's serious, and he's very good, isn't he? He's very good. Hmm. I, I was... Well, yeah, but again, again, I think we... Again, I think that comes from... The idea is that... You know, in the story, in the script, you, we are, they are portraying unit is a... A, a force to be reckoned with, if you will, an efficient task force. Yes, yeah. And obviously, in the in the serial, you've got Douglas Canfield bringing his expert, you know, his experiences to the fore. Yes, yes. I think. Um, let, me, let me throw something your way again. Yeah. Um, a lot of authors have often said that it's very difficult to. Do Patrick Troughton. Right, right. How, how do you feel uh, about how Ian Martin approached this particular characterisation of the Doctor? Well, I thought. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna tip a little bit into the to the new audiobook version from uh, BBC Audio mm. with this because. Um, with with his son David Troughton reading it, yeah. I, I absolutely love this audio version. I thought it was done mm. fabulously, and the characterization. Well, when David Troughton speaks the, the, his father's lines, it's quite haunting. It's yeah. quite. It is so well. Well, yeah, they are very similar voices. They are, and I and I think the character. I think Yamata really gets the characterization. There, there are some parts in there with the, well, for example, um, 
I don't know, when he's just doing the things, talking to the brigadier on the radio, and yeah. he's always, you know, he's over and under or down and out, or yeah. you know, and you've got that little bit of frustration from uh, from the brigadier, you know, and uh, those little things r- really capture Pat Troughton's character. I I think. Do you do you think so, Michael? I think I think he's perhaps oh, it's like they, these little comic asides, if you will. I think he, he got yeah. those right. Yes, but it yeah. is the the darker, serious aspect yeah. of this doctor. Yes, which I think he, you know, he and Marta got right because particularly um, in those uh, segments in which. Uh, the Doctor and Vaughan are confronting each other. Yes, yeah. You know, um, and like I say, like I said earlier, there you get the sense that they are both equals. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, Tobias Vaughan realises very quickly that the Doctor is not someone to be underestimated. Yes, yeah. It's it's a, it's a lovely. He's so cold and calculating, Vaughan, isn't he? He's very very. Um, I don't know, the stillness of his character, if you like, comes across. Yeah, but there's, the temper is there. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's just bubbling away under the surface because he's, he's quite defiant towards the cyber controller because, you know, he's got his own agenda, really. And, uh, yeah. You know, and it, it, it's um, he's a, he was a, he's a very complex character with a lot yeah. of facets to him, and this is why I say I think he's one of one of the best villains yeah. the series ever had. And, and speaking of villains, let's uh, let's talk about the Cybermen. So this would have been, I think, the fifth Cyberman story. So we've got we've got in, um, sorry so in Patrick Troughton's era, just in Patrick Troughton. So we've it's actually the sixth altogether. Then is it from the tenth planet? Oh, well, so we had the Moon Base. Yeah, yeah. We had the team of the Cybermen. Yes. We had. Well, maybe it's the fourth. Yeah, yeah. Even I so, think it's, it's the fourth. Uh, yeah, so because was because uh, you know the Perry Nation was going to take the dialects to America, so you know, this is why you know the Cybermen were the, the go-to villain. Yeah. Um. So, do you think that perhaps that the Cybermen? How do you feel they were used in the Trout era? Do you think at this stage they had been used too many times? Because bear in mind, there was only two two stories between the wheel and space and this, so they were very close together. Really? No, I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. That that's how close together they were. I would have thought probably because this is an eight parter. Um, mm. the, the moon was the moon base a six parter. No, uh, four parter. Four parter. Tomb of the Cybermen a four parter. Yeah, yeah. Wheel in Space was six, I believe. Gosh, so that would have been an awful lot of Cybermen on, on the television in in those days. Yeah, yeah. I suppose at the time they would have come across, I think, as being overused. I mean, if you can imagine these days, if we would have had 
so many episodes of Daleks one after another so close together that it would have been a bit which of a... they had done oh of course yeah yeah they did with the in the, in the Daleks master plan yeah oh in the Daleks master plan of course yes yeah you know yeah. There, there was one 12 episodes and there was one episode where they weren't in it but, so even so that's yeah, that's a yeah. twelve-part story. Well, it's interesting because you, you you pointed out, which I I have to say I hadn't thought of really, how little the Cybermen are actually in it. I think you said, "Is it really a Cyberman story?" Because when you think, well, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you think about it, like I say, they they don't appear till very very late in the story. Um, even when they do appear, there's not a huge amount of screen time for them, is there? Well, no, um, I think, um, let's see, I mean, you had the cyber control uh, pop up in the first couple of episodes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, um, we, we just... and, and later on, Jamie and the Doctor see one of them being revitalised, and this is when the Doctor becomes first aware. Yes. But yeah. it's then it's only, only it's only towards the end. Yeah. That they, they finally show up. Um, yeah. you know, and and to great effect. Yes. Oh, fabulous effect. I mean, uh, with the scenes with them coming out of the sewers, um, St Paul's, they are so effective mm. and it's so it's just oh yeah, just chucking those manhole covers up in the air. Yeah, I mean, you can't really go wrong with that. You can't. It's, it's brilliant, really great stuff, and the descriptions in the in the novelization are fabulous as well. It's um, I think the whole thing it strikes me really as thriller all the way through. It's a sort of almost like a political thriller because you you talked about Vaughan's ambitions and you I think you used the word megalomaniac. Mm. And yeah. I, I think that is how he comes across. You know, it could, it didn't have to be the Cyberman. It's anyone. Who can he use to get power? And that's, you know, he's constantly squaring up to them through via the, the, the machine, you know, the communicator all the way through, isn't he? He's always saying, it's not going to go ahead unless you, you yeah. know. <laughs> so this guy is, um, it's a great characterization. It's very good because, I love the, um, you know, when, when there'd be a little bit of silence in the audio version and then the machine would come back with a slight, a slight sort of downbeat, you know, we accept your terms or whatever, you know, it's, uh, it's quite good. Yeah. That's right. But it's, it's funny, you know, because I wonder if, I mean, I'm just throwing this out in the open, if Tobias Vaughan was... <laughs> Inspiration of sorts for the master. Ah, very interesting. Uh, because the master, he was always, uh, you know, uh, linking up with, you know, conquering alien race of the of the week. Yeah, that's true. That's for absolutely. his own for his own purposes. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. I haven't thought about that. So he could be a, a, a model, if you like, for the Master. Because um, he, even when the Master came along, we knew he was a Time Lord. But because of the setting being stuck on Earth most of the time, he was very much like a Bond supervillain, if you like. And, uh, mm. 
you know, it was only a bit later as the episodes were going back out into space that uh, we saw more of his sort of uh, otherworldliness, I suppose. So, very, very interesting. Can I, can I ask, Michael, did did you have a chance to listen to the audiobook version? What did you yes. think? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've said this before, I always think when you bring an actor in, it enhances the reading. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I mean, it, it, and obviously, uh, David Carton's voice. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's, you know, it's, uncannily similar, particularly when he, he lowers his voice. Yes. You yeah. know, it's kind of like a whisper. Oh, um, yeah. very atmospheric. And, I, you know, I, I think it's it's far more effective than when um, like Fraser Hines is, is playing the second Doctor on Big Finish. Right, yes. You know, because, you know, he's good at it, but I, but I think, um, obviously... I think David Troughton does a, a much better job. So, yeah, I think the audio book, it's, um, well, you know, you can't really go wrong with this story. The only, my only real issue with this story is because the length of the story itself, it's, you know, it's eight episodes long. Yeah. I, I do feel that it's, you know, that's been compromised because, you know, you had, you got 155 page count in this book. Yes, yeah. And, you, you know, you, they obviously it's had to be pared down somewhat. Yeah. Um, the detail's been pared down because the, the, the story's still there. Yeah, yeah. So that's my only real criticism. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a great... Um, I, I listened to it um, almost two times now, and I don't usually do that. Um um, I usually listen to it. I may come back to it at a later date, but usually it's just the once through. But uh, I thought this one was so good. It, it almost sort of gave me a completely fresh view on the invasion. I don't know why, but it, it just um, it just disappeared. It gone off my radar. I, I'd forgotten about it, and like I say, I got that DVD back out, and uh, it's just just a great story. I just wish they'd find uh, those other two episodes again to. Uh, because the Cosgrove Hall do a great job with the animation, very atmospheric, um, lovely shadows and mm. things. It matches in well. I, no complaints about that. It's a great DVD, but it would be nice to have the complete story back again, I think. Well, of course it would. But again, uh, as I said, um, at, the, you know, at the start of this uh, recording, this book is... Um, Give you another perspective, yeah, on the story because the, the inclusion of this, the uh, the sequence where uh, unit goes to rescue Professor Watkins, yes, is it something that is mentioned in the televised story? Yeah, yeah, um, but it happens off screen, and I think here you, you know it's uh, it just fleshes it out a little bit more. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it, you do notice. I'm I just reading a little bit about Ian Martyr, and um, it says that for this book, 
um, he's not as detailed as he usually is in his novelizations, which I think I did notice. Um, it, it sort of um, went to let's get the story done a bit pace about two thirds of the way through. But that could be what well, you're saying about having to, ha- yeah. you know, condense it really, isn't it? Well, I remember um, when Terence Dicks, or was it Malcolm Holt? Well, anyway, when they did the novelisation for the War Games. Right. Oh, I mean, that's Terence Dicks. Yeah, yeah. Now, many years later, um, when they novelised the Dynamics Master Plan, they actually split it into two books. Ah, right, did they? Um, rather than try and cram it into a standard length book. Yeah. And there were a few exceptions with Target where they would sometimes increase the page count. I know they did it for um, Theory from the Deep. Yes, yeah. They increased the page count. I think they gave it an extra 20 pages, I think. Right, right, yeah. Well, obviously, this was something that maybe they didn't allow Ian Martin to do it, or maybe Ian Martin thought, "Well, let's see what we can do." Here. But I don't, I don't think he, um, I don't think he short trains anyone. No, I'm no. not suggesting that for a moment. Again, but I, I don't know going to expect bless him. I mean, some of the stories he, uh, he uh, wrote or adapted, rather. Yeah. Um. He um, sometimes, you know, it does seem like he did a rush job on some of them. Yes, yes. But I think that's because he had to meet deadlines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He'll admit that. I mean, the one you mentioned there, the war games, I actually remember joining the Target Club. Forgive me, uh, listeners, if you've heard me say this before. But I joined the, the, the Target Club or whatever it was called where you you cut the bit out of the back of the book and they would send you a little magazine about the upcoming issues. And when I saw the war games and I, I, I read in Doctor Who magazine that this was a big, serious um, story, you know, I was waiting fabulously for this and I actually pre-ordered it um, with you had to send um, a postal order. So I sent the postal order and I was waiting and waiting and it took weeks and I was expecting some big tome coming through, you know, but it just mm. it just slipped through the letterbox and there was this 120-page large print war games and it was such a disappointment before I even started it. But um, maybe we'll get on to that when you review it. But what, what do you think of that one, Michael? But the war games. Yeah, yeah. The the book now, the, the target novelization. Well, to be honest with you, I, I might have it in pain about it, but I do remember hiring it from the library and it was in the hardback, so Oh. But it would have been um I don't know how old I would have been, but I suppose back then I probably thought, Wow, this is a big book. Ah, right, yeah, yeah. But I can't, but like I say, I can't really remember a lot about it, to be quite honest. Yeah, Um, I I think I was expecting a a bit of a, a bit of a Malcolm Hulk-like book, or a bit of a, you know, something a bit, a bit meatier, and I think it was one of the ones where Terence just had to get through and get it done. Well, I think this is, this is, I think this is the problem with a lot of the 
you know, when they when they were having to adapt these longer stories, like the invasion. Yeah. You you've got to kind of like whittle it down. Yeah. Um, to keep within the page count, but at the same time, try not to sacrifice um, detail. Yes. And I, I think I think Ian Martin, he did a good job of balancing that out. Yes, yeah. I think he did. I, I, I think um, in all its formats, um, I think this is an absolute top-notch story. It's, it's. I think you said landmark earlier. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Michael. It's, it's really. Well, yeah, because it's, it's the introduction of the unit. Um, I think, um, you know, obviously people remember it for you know the Cybermen stalking the streets of London. Yeah, yeah. But far more effectively than the dialect. I mean, the Dalek invasion of Earth, it has to be said. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but again, as I say, it's, it's the introduction of units. Um, and obviously, it's still in its early days because there, you know, there were some cast changes to be to be made. But yeah, um, but yeah it's definitely a landmark story yes. in that respect. Yeah. And um, so, just to give it a, a, a quick score, Michael, what would you where would you rate it? What would you score it to ten? Be um, I would give it. I'd give it an eight out of ten. An eight out of ten, yeah. I, 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 I'd agree with you with that. I think an eight out of ten, really a really good story, a great read, and um, a really fantastic listen for the audiobook version as well. I really like that, and. Um, I just want to say, how do you fancy the claws of Axos for the next one? Um, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, actually, this is actually got one of my favourite characters in it. So yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you happy? You happy to do that? That's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy yeah. to do that. Oh, excellent! That's about to be released now. So, um, um, we'll we'll do the claws of Axos next, and um. I'll just say if you would anything else you wanted to say, Michael, before we finish the recording, or um, I don't think so. But well, no, I would, I would say that um, I think uh, I think sixties Doctor Who does sometimes have a tendency to be forgotten. Um, but I think you should really check out this audio book. Excellent. And I think if, you, if you've ever kind of like had your doubts about since so you should give this a shot because I think it's, it's, a, it's a really good story. And, and, and personally, I think it's the last truly great, great Cyberman story. I think this was the last time when they were really effective. <laughs>
And David, thank you very much again for joining us. And, and we go going to look in this episode at the invasion, or as it said on the new BBC audiobook version, um, Cybermen the Invasion, I believe it's called there, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. And so, uh, David, what did you think of the invasion? I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. It's a five-disc audio book, so it took me some time to get through. It's a big one, yeah. It is a big one. Yeah. But it was... There were gold and then their hills, and I enjoyed myself. Ah. I also was surprised that the story came back to me, and I haven't seen the story for years, but the the um, television version, I could almost see it playing in my head as yeah. David Troughton read the story. Yes. And it was a huge nostalgia trip. It yeah. was fantastic. Because, of course, the, the invasion on television was an absolute milestone story for Doctor Who. It was indeed, yeah. It introduced Unit proper. Yeah. It was from Derek Sherwin, who of course was John Pertwee's first producer. Yes. It uh, properly introduced the Brigadier as at that rank. Indeed. It established the idea that Unit flies around in aircraft all the oh. time we've seen it a lot in peter capaldi's doctor who that uh, the president of earth has his own jumbo jet yeah and the unit folk are on it and the master's taken prisoner on there as well so yes it was it was good stuff and this um th this is where i was so impressed um i think we, we mentioned before that um it was released on DVD over ten years ago now. With the was it? Yeah, with the, the animation. Um, with the animations, yeah. Because I loved this audio version so much that I I dug it out and it was right at the back of my cupboard, you know. So, <laughs> and um, I put it on because this it's so good. And Unit. I mean, you've just said about the firsts which we have in this, and Unit and the Brigadier and mm. Sergeant Benton. And they're all. Oh, they're all fabulous. They mm. really—it's a serious task force we've got there, isn't it? Well, it is indeed. And I think the other thing to say—you've just mentioned the DVD, but I recall never actually seeing the invasion until it came out on VHS, which yeah. I do remember was 1993 because it was one of the videos with the 30th anniversary Doctor Who diamond logo on it. So I know when that is, but of course. When Doctor Who was actually on television, I hadn't seen this story at all. And, and my mm. knowledge of this, as I say, iconic milestone, call it what you will, story, was entirely based upon the quality of Ian Martyr's novel. Oh, and you've touched on and it there. everything, yeah. you know, I knew about this story didn't come from the visuals. Yeah. It came from the quality of Ian Martyr's writing. Right. And for that, I'm pretty grateful. I think he he did a marvellous job. He certainly did. I, he, he's done a wonderful job of it. Really great. The, the writing comes across. I mean, this is one of the things which I find, you know, sometimes we get this fortunate event where some 
a series of things come together. And with mm. this, we've got Ian Martyr's writing. We've got a fabulous story anyway, a great mm. villain, a fabulous doctor, great mm. companions. Mm. And on top of that, with the audiobook version, we have got um, Patrick Troughton's son narrating it and acting it. Mm. And he is fabulous. His eldest son. His eldest son. His eldest son. In many ways, the son he took the role of Doctor Who to finance his education. Oh well, he <laughs> we owe him quite a lot, actually. We yeah. do. Well, he did a fabulous job of it. All based on Doctor Who. Yeah. So, so then, of course, he David Troughton's had a long career. He must thinking about it. He must almost be as old as his father now when really? he left us. I think he's about 66 now. Ah. So he's no spring chicken, but he's got a huge body of work behind him. Yeah, yeah. And much of it for the RSC. He was extremely popular at Stratford during the sort of mid-90s period. Seen, Played some fine roles there. You've seen him on stage at the RSC. Yes, I saw his, his crowning performance, which was Richard III, ah. which he played at Stratford. I also saw him in a show called The Venetian Twins, in which he played, as the title suggests, twins. Right. One of them was very good and the other one was very evil. Ah. And there were, it was one of those pieces. It was the mechanics of farce. It was all based on quick change and hiding. There was a famous scene where one of the twins lost all his clothes and had to hide in, naked in a barrel. And <laughs> somehow... Yes, they got him from the barrel out on the stage as the other twin. That that twin left the stage, and he popped up again out the barrel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! And he really, yes. honestly, the, the man is so good at acting. You really, really believe they were two different people. Good gosh! Well, Absolutely. well, well. The the appearance which he did in in Doctor Who with David Tennant. Um, is it midnight? I think That's he was... right. It was midnight, and he only got the job because. Um, the chap from a lower low is it Sam Kelly? Oh yes, yeah. He sadly since died, but um, oh. he, he I think he'd broken his leg or his arm, and anyway, he was incapacitated. Yeah. And David Troughton came on as a substitute. Oh, well. Wow. They got the job from it. And he so was really fabulous. his performance in New Who was a bit of an accident. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a lucky break for Sam Kelly, by the sounds of things. No, no. And the thing is, the the part which he got. He was he was so perfect in it was mm. just it was just uh, he does he 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 does as I say I've seen him on stage he has a fantastic presence on stage I saw him not so long ago in an Alan Akebourne I think it was Akebourne Alan Akebourne right an Akebourne play called Seasons Greetings which had several Doctor Who connections actually because it also starred Catherine Tate ah. And also had Mark Gatiss in the Gatiss, Gatiss. Mark Gatiss, ah. As well. Yes. It was very Who heavy. Good gosh. And that was on at National the other Christmas. Oh, gosh. That's the last time I saw David Troughton on stage. But I'm actually, as luck would have it, we'll be seeing him. um, Where are we now? We're mid-August. So I'll be seeing him later this month. Oh, wow. And what's he doing? Because he's in, um, well, he's in King Lear. He's in the RSC's next production. Of King Lear, he's playing Gloucester. Oh uh, my gosh! Wow. Know the play at all? But that's um, fabulous. Do you, do you know the play? Yeah. I do know the play very well. I've yeah, yeah. seen versions of it, and funny enough, uh, talking about links here, 
the last version of King Lear I saw was at the National, uh, must have been a couple of years ago now. Yeah. But Gloucester has two sons called Edgar and, and Ed Edmund. I think that's their names. Yeah. And, th and the bad son, who I think is Edmund. Oh, my thought, yes. The, the <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. Edmund was played by an actor called Sam Troughton. Sam? Who is David Troughton's son? No, absolutely. The third generation. Yes, absolutely. They're a talented lot, the Troughtons. Wow. Uh, my my dream casting would be for Sam Troughton to play the evil son and for David Troughton to play his father. That but that's not going to happen. That, that would be great. That would be great. But but, but uh, yes, yeah, yes. But that's fabulous. But getting getting back on to the invasion. I mean, invasion, I, all, yeah, all so I can say is. It was. It's a real treat for for us to have David Troughton um, narrating and performing this. And when he says the some of the doctor's lines, it's quite scary because he sounds so much like his dad. There is a sort of yes. He sort of has an effortless resonance with his father's voice. He can conjure. He conjures his father's voice, but he doesn't do an impression. That's right. That's right. I've said it before. I've thought about how Patrick Troughton delivers his lines and he, he has this almost husky delivery at yeah. times and he's being conspiratorial. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's so powerful, and, isn't and it? And he catches, he catches those little asides, the, the, the acting that we probably didn't really appreciate when we saw it on VHS, but I think I do now yeah. to realise that you're looking at a very skilled practitioner. I think so as Doing well. Doing his thing. I, yeah, no, I, I think I, I've come over the years to appreciate Patrick Trout more and more and more. And whenever I see his performances, um, of The Doctor particularly, but other performances as well, he's just mm. so... He's one of those ones who... He doesn't stand out and make a big, um, you know, song and dance, if you like, oh. you know, about things. He's just there. And if you watch... It's quietly efficient and your eye is drawn to him. Yes. His presence. Yeah, absolutely. And physically, he's not very big either. So it's hard to, to realise there must be an aura or something about him. Yeah. When he's on film or when he's on television. Yeah. yeah. Draws you in. And, and to an extent, his son has those qualities, especially yeah. when he's on stage. Oh, really but having, I think having praised David Troughton to the sky, I, I think I must court controversy. And I right. don't know, you possibly could tell me off for this. But I have to say, the Cybermen voice from Nicholas Briggs, Right. I did wonder why that was necessary. Yes. I thought right. it was superfluous. Oh. For a start, the Cybermen don't really speak in this story at all. Yeah. And his main contribution, or the main contribution from Nicholas Briggs, is to talk to the sort of controlling machine that lives behind Tobias Vaughan's wall, his sliding wall. Yes. And I find with the televised version, when Peter Halliday does that voice... Yeah. I just find it. I just find it um, moves better. I just think it delivers the lines better. Yeah, yeah. It could be because it's a different medium, and you know, there's a lot more pace on in a television performance. I, it there. could it, well it, be. Uh, I, yeah, talk, I, but I, I don't understand why David Trout wasn't allowed to handle the whole audio himself because oh, he's more than capable of doing it. Oh, absolutely, he could have done it extremely well. I, I think maybe, maybe it's. 
they wanted to get another star name in there and sort they of wanted spoiled. to get the hook didn't they yeah they yeah but hook in there i think so but i i will say as well because he's the go-to man for all all of these uh the cybermen the Daleks. certainly is now yes. yeah yeah absolutely so he's probably he's probably got a contract out there saying nobody's allowed to do a cyberman voice i, I don't know i'm so, just well, i'm perhaps, making that up I don't. no perhaps he's yeah. he's very very good at good at doing them but yeah but I, I will say something I did I find didn't it. let's just say this yeah. I didn't think the presence of Nick Briggs without wishing to knock him or put him down yeah I didn't see that it added significant value to no. the product to the audio yeah the audio book that's interesting I, I did I did feel you know, David Troughton could have handled that no problems I think so he could have been great yeah I, I will say I, I thought um, and it's, it's another criticism, which I don't like to do, <laughs> but um, the volume when some of the uh, Nick Briggs's voices came in, I don't know what they were doing, but the volume was a little bit high and it was making me jump <laughs> and jar a little bit when we had the lovely sort of mellifluous voice going along of David Troughton and then we this sudden loud jump, you know. It's, right, right. Yeah, I don't know why that was because it certainly wasn't doing that in the Macro Terror Death to the Daleks. Yeah. I can see, yes, I can see what you're saying there. It certainly um could jar if you weren't expecting it. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose they they could argue you're meant to jump when Cybermen speak. So mm, I, well, I don't you know. Very reasonably argue that. Yeah. They could. They could. You could. They're not yes, they're not designed to cure insomnia. <laughs> That's for certain. So what, yes. What what do what do you think, David? Um I'm gonna touch on now the the violence because when I started listening to this Mm. I mean, I've I've actually got a comment here. I've written down in my notes. Wow, it's so wonderfully violent. <laughs> do you have a I comment? I think I know the bit you're referring to as well. Do you? Do you? you you've yeah, got, I think you've you're ahead. talking. There's there's a a character in in episode one, which sadly we can't see in the original show. Yeah. There's a character who drives the lorry and encounters the Doctor and Jamie. And Zoe somewhere within Vaughan's perimeter fence. He's a unit operative, I think. And he's he? a unit operative, yeah. and he's got victim written all over him. <laughs> at the moment he appears, yeah. and there's a, a very, very um, unsettling piece of writing from Ian Martyr, where he describes the man's death mm, yeah. in, in extremely graphic terms. Yeah. It has to be said they blow his head off and bits of him end up inside the lorry cab. Oh, it was... Now, that never happened on television, I'll no. swear. <laughs> <laughs> I think they shoot him. Yeah. I, I don't think they shoot him in quite such a messy area. Well... And I, I think Ian Martyr did sort of play on on that a bit. I think he had a bit of a reputation. Certainly there was a, a regular column in Doctor Who magazine, I think it was called On Target, oh. and it's predominantly written by Gary Russell, who himself became an author of some profligacy with yeah. <laughs> with the new range. But yes. um, yeah. he always used to take Ian Martyr to task on the levels of violence. Really? In his writing. To me, it sort of treated the reader a bit more adultly, perhaps. Mm. Mm. And 
in many ways, I think, I think this is a good point as well. I think if you're going to portray violence, it should be seen to hurt. Yes. I think if you, you know, if, if, if there's violence and there's no apparent consequence to it. Yeah. I don't think that's very helpful. No. I'll no. say one thing for the director, Quentin Tarantino. He does show the consequences of the violence. Oh, yes. And yeah. Ian Martyr has decided to pop a couple of really quite near-the-knuckle descriptions into this book. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, Star flying, and I know Jamie gets shot in the leg or he gets injured anyway when does. they did the escape of Professor Watkins, which isn't part of the televised adventure, but it's just obviously in the camera scripts and has been reinstated. Right, yeah, there's yeah. There's a bit of a gun battle, and one of Vaughan's lackeys is horribly killed at that point as well. That's right, and it's quite it's quite a bit of a bit of a showpiece in the audio, isn't it? There's smashing yeah. glass, and it is, it is, yeah, it's, yeah. It's where the technical presentation comes into its own. Yeah, it does indeed, and I, <laughs> I, I, and I think the actual one of the other very violent bits in it, and you say in. Um, you do think that it should show the consequences, and I, I thought, think it's helpful if it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the the scene where General Routledge is forced to kill himself. Yes. Now, yes. That is very violent, very nasty. But does that come within what you would think is is the correct way to show it? Perhaps. Well, I. I'm wondering, did that scene appear in that form on the TV? I, mm, I does Routledge shoot himself? I, I if, th- if he does, then it's then it's obviously lifted wholesale from the camera script. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, it's it's more it's more illustrative of Vaughan's absolute control over the man because yeah, I've never tried it, but one of the key elements of being human i think is this sense of survival yes and survival at all costs and to think that that somebody could have that much control over you that you would actually park your own survival instincts is really rather unsettling yeah yeah. When you think about it, it. Is. I, I think it's perhaps showing the ultimate um, in control. Control, because Vaughan is not a nice man. No, no. Kevin Stoney plays him as a nice man. Yeah. yeah. The doctor says, you know, that that he's not all he seems, Jamie. And I think he means it. Yeah, I because think. He's, he's a very smooth operator, but there are times on the TV and in the book and particularly in David Trout's performance of the character. Yes, yeah. Well, he absolutely loses it. Yeah, yeah. It's a great performance. As does Packer. Yeah, oh, (laughs) (laughs) Packer's a great character. This whole story is full. It's chock block of of great characters, isn't it? Mm. Um, One thing I did observe about Packer, particularly on the televised version, is he's almost a comic foil to Vaughan. Yes. Isn't he? He's yeah. less so. I mean, an example of this is the Doctor, it's somewhere in episode four, I think. Yeah. No, it can't be episode four because that doesn't exist. There's a point sort of around the middle of the story where the Doctor and Jamie escape through a lift hatch. Yes. And get away. Yeah. And to actually gain access to the lift, the Doctor's sort of playing along with Packer and saying, all right, all right, I'll come quietly. Oh, look, Mr. Vaughan. 
yes. and pushes Packer over. Yeah. And the, the actor who plays him, Peter Peter Halliday, is it? Peter, it is Peter Halliday, yes. Yes. In the next scene where he goes and reports his miserable failure to Vaughan, He's, he looks slightly dishevelled. He he has a receding hairline anyway. Yeah. And what he has is sort of poked up and thrown asunder. And it's it sort of reminded me of the loss of dignity that Captain Mannering used to oh. suffer <laughs> on a weekly basis every yes. time the platoon trampled him or he fell in a ditch. Yes. Yeah. And so we had that. But what we had in the book is a very, very nasty character. And I think I would have liked... He's he's very sadistic. He's very, as I say, unpleasant. I would have liked a bit of backstory because I'm sure, I don't know, perhaps some people are just born with hate inside them. I don't know. But Mm. um, Mm. something must have happened to him in life. He must have had a life experience. I think you mentioned... That gave him such a bleak outlook on the world because he was not a nice man. No, no. At all. And You said about Packer before he was being... Is obviously would have been a bully at school. A damaged person. Yeah. A, a yeah. bully and a coward. Yeah, absolutely. Coward. So, yeah. yes, he, he, he does. He's, um, I'd say, he's, he's absolutely written to the hilt in the book as, as a nasty piece of work. Yeah. Um, whereas on telly, he's sort of Vaughan's foil. He's Vaughan's plaything. Yeah. Yeah. Vaughan, I think we're blessed with an incredible performance on the television. Yes. Kevin yes. Stoney anyway. He, he's he got that controlled menace about him. He has. And there's something, you can see it bubbling, but it only very occasionally boils over yeah. and reveals his true colours. And I think that um, David Troughton's version is different, but again, different. brilliant. He's like the Vern, sorry Vaughan. He um, he's a, he he's a bit of a a cat, isn't he? He's like yes, he yeah. purrs yes a lot. Alec Guinness used to say he used to say his technique for acting was when he was given a script, he would always assign an animal or a creature right. to the character that he was going to play. So I don't know, George Smiley would be say an eagle because he's always watching. Oh. Watching his prey. Yes. I think Vaughan, I think Kevin Stoney's performance is very cat like. Yes. Very measured, very lethargic, except at times of extreme stress when he <laughs> becomes a bit more vocal, but he purrs his lines. I don't yeah. want to do the animal analogies to death, but it's a very controlled, measured, fine, fine performance. And as you say, David Troughton gives a variation on that. Yeah. But he sort of ticks the boxes, doesn't he, with his mm. performance as well? I think, uh, I, I, yeah, I think we have a combination, as we, you know, I think I said earlier, of really first-rate things coming mm. into this story. I mean, the, the original script is by Derek Sherwin, and he's done a great job. I mean, I think with Unit, um, I already mm. touched on it earlier, the scenes there where we have them going mm. to the 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 airfield and there's one of these huge what is it hercules or? well i assume it's a hercules yeah. yes it's a 
cargo plane, isn't it? Yeah, and the, and the jeep goes inside it, and there's and a huge... They aren't they, originally? The Doctor and Jamie are driven inside yeah, yeah. the body of the, the plane, aren't they? Yeah, and they've got their head, you know, or, or you know, an office in there, and it's like... Yeah, but, yes, it was obviously is... considered very futuristic way of operating. Yeah, and it seems... When you consider the, the number of miles a large plane could cover... Yeah. Very, very quickly. It always amuses me in the story that they go for a bit of a, a spin round and, and sort of land in basically the same place <laughs> they took off. That's so true. How much aircraft fuel are you using? Yes. Yeah. But I, I suppose it's a security thing. It's I suppose taking them into the sky is, is, is to do with, I don't know, some sort of the, it sort of enhances their secrecy. Yes. You yeah. can never pin them down because they could have moved. I think whatever the um, reason is in there, visually, it just looks great. Yeah. It does. Uh, <laughs> and I think, I think that... Um, it's, it's, might... it's style over being sensible, isn't it? Yes, or yeah, and I think so. Style it's... over pragmatism to set it in an aeroplane. Yes, I think so. And um, I mean, that is, that's part of it anyways. I mean, I, I remember when President Obama came uh, to Britain a few years back. Right. And, yeah, right. and he was in, was he in Ireland in that huge car they've got? What's, what's that huge car he's got? I like, truly you know, don't know, I'm afraid. Yeah, right? it's like some sort of armoured this. It's got everything you can think right. of to... But when it went through the gates out of um, some, uh, you know, establishment somewhere, it was actually jammed, stuck on the uh, anti-theft <laughs> barriers because it was so big and heavy, it set them off and it was just stuck and they couldn't move this <laughs> car. And I just thought it was so comical. It was on the news at the time, you know, the most powerful, they got helicopters flying around him. They've got right. a destroyer ship in the dock. They've got, and there he is, stuck in a car, can't we get through a gate, you know? Mm. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going off now. But um, if I can pick you up on a point you just made, yeah. actually, about the story, it certainly is a Derek Sherwin script. But the originator of the story is Kit Pedler. Oh, Kit right. Pedler was the resident scientist who oh. worked with Jerry Davis as the dramatist. And they produced Doomwatch, which is a far more adult program. Yes, Doctor Who. I but remember watching the, the Cybermen originally. They were a, a meditation on advances in transplant surgery. Right, right. Of course, Kit Pedler himself has been dead for many, many, many years. But we were on the cusp, I think, of the first head transplant taking place. Oh my gosh! And yeah. it's when science goes bad, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes. It's it's to do with Kit Peddler's nightmare vision about how far science could actually progress to a point where humanity is removed from the human. Yes. And the Cybermen were his representation of that outcome. Yeah. And they're a very powerful image, aren't they? In in that in that uh, when seen in those terms, rather than just in monstrous terms. We, yes spoken yeah. in the past about things being monsters for monsters' sake. Yeah. Whereas with the Cybermen, we always got the feeling that they were misguided humanoids who've yeah, just taken science that little bit too far. Yeah, there was something lost there. Lost humanity that's as a it. consequence. That's it. It's that, it's that and I think, losing humanity, yeah. And, and I think in order to carry favour with them, Vaughan has to sacrifice his humanity 
because of course mm. he's part converted, isn't he? He is. Yes, he is. In the he is of the story. Yeah, yeah. One thing I don't quite understand about Vaughan, and I'm sure you're going to tell me, he has he, he obviously has intentions to double cross the Cybermen from the very beginning. Yes. But there's um, he has one machine. It's very hard to re- is it called the Cerebatron? Oh, Cerebatron? Yes. He has one machine. Yeah. And he's going to take the cyber fleet on with it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how he was ever going to pull that one off. Yes, yes. You know? yeah, but I think it, the interesting thing there, and I, I've said this to you before, if somebody had told me when I saw this story on VHS in 1993 that, you know, about 30 years later I'd spend most of my time either on a full-size computer or on a handheld computer, yeah. I think I would have laughed at them. Yeah, absolutely But the right. story is very much about, and it's been often repeated since, very much what could happen if either Bill Gates or Steve Jobs had been a wrong'un. Yes. It's technology gone bad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The idea that the dependency on machinery, which we all have... Yeah. I mean, I went for a run the other night and at a certain time of night, and all I encountered were children playing Pokemon Go. Oh. Gets them out of the house, but yeah. they were utterly, utterly, utterly um, dependent on playing that game. I, I know Jamie, in the context of the story, is given the radio, the transistor radio, and the radio is going to be the conduit through which the Cybermen invade. Yeah, yeah, with, with so it's a good technology. job these super geeks didn't turn bad in many ways because this is what the outcome might have been yeah yeah i mean this this is um very uh um what do you what do you call it well you call it you call it you'd call that a prophecy wouldn't you prophetic prescience no no yes that's 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 a word that you could also use yeah i think what I'm sorry, the image of children looking at Pokemon Go. I, I got <laughs> I got back of, uh, I I had to phone my son up because I went to take the dog for a walk on a beautiful day, and there were all these um, children because it's the summer holidays, and they were all around the beach looking at their phones <laughs> and iPads, and I thought. What on earth? I thought perhaps they they've seen something to film, but I could, <laughs> so I phoned my son and he explained that they they're actually looking for these Pokemon Go's, aren't they? Which uh... it's an age thing, Greg. You and you and I are both suffering from it. We oh. don't understand. <laughs> no. All I all I can say though is if there's some sort of latent device within Pokemon Go through which the world will be overrun. I think we're all in a bit of trouble. I do, do you know. It's very, very popular. It, it is, isn't it? There's, very, very popular. Yeah, there could That's, be a Doctor Who yeah. script in there, David. Maybe, maybe they'll they'll burst out to the of the iPhones or something, and uh, those Pokemon Go are quite uh, horrific creatures. I don't know. <laughs> well, one thing I do like doing in our chats, and I, I yeah. don't know if you enjoy it too, is thinking of resonance with other Doctor Who stories mm. because as we've said this is very much the template for unit for the Pertwee oh. I can remember a few other stories there's there's a story from David Tennant's era yeah. which almost knowingly remakes the story called Rise of the Cybermen Age of Steel oh. and it's got a very Tobias Vaughan like character in it played by Roger Lloyd Pack yes can't for the life of me remember the character's name, of course. John. 
oh again it's an age thing we yes. can't yeah yeah we, we look but, at that but that there was definite resonance there and i also from new who i was also reminded of the Sontaran stratagem which right. yeah. involved that sat nav gone bad that that evil sat nav through oh. which the Sontarans were launching a dastardly plan. So there we are, even even to this day, the bedrock of the invasion story is still feeding into later Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, it is sort of going across time. It was John Lumick. Um, John Lumick. John Lumick, yes, yes. it was. Yes, yeah, the, the right... I remember, Lodge, uh, I remember Roger Lloyd Pack playing him... Um, I remember he had a, oh, that's right, he had a sidekick from New Who, here from Classic Who, from yes. Remembrance of the Daleks, who's appearing in Swansea. He is indeed. The Dimensions Convention. Again, I can't remember the man's name. Colin? It's called, Re Regenerations. Is Regenerations the in, yeah. in Swansea. It's Colin Spall. Colin Spall, of course it was. Yes, and he, he was, was fabulous. He was very much the packer of that piece, wasn't he? Yes, he was. But he realises before it's too late that the um, cybernetics are going too far and he will end up part of the gang. Yeah. And he sort of avoids that fate, doesn't he, in the context of that story? He does. He pulls he, it. He's still got enough humanity left. He's got enough him. humanity to pull out. Vaughan... Well, Vaughan is motivated by hatred at the end, isn't he? He says, yeah. if I do help you, Doctor, yeah. not because I'm fond of you, it's because I absolutely hate those Cybermen now. Oh, Which is yes. quite right, yeah. considering he was always planning to betray them anyway. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, source for the goose, source for the gander, really, <laughs> you know. It's, They're only doing unto you what you'd have done to them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was, uh, and I'm sure they, they knew that was coming, so I'm surprised. I think they did, I yeah. They, well, they, no, they don't make promises. No. <laughs> it was quite... I, I like the way, actually, that he would make demands to the to the machine, which was the, the the sort of communication device, I suppose, of the Cybermen, wasn't it? That was their... Yes, that was their... Yeah, what do you, would you call that? Their public... Public face. <laughs> public their face, yes. Public yeah. relations <laughs> unit. Yes, yeah. And... Um, I like the way that he would make demands, you know, and it would always go, yes, okay, we subject. <laughs> but you could you could tell they had absolutely no intention of carrying it through. <laughs> but yet he didn't see that at all, did he? he, he seemed no, to, he didn't. You know. the, 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 other point, the other plot point in the story, which I don't understand and I've not seen the visuals for, yeah. but which is absolutely described in Ian Martyr's book, is why on earth the cyber mothership fires on the TARDIS. Yes. I yeah. have no idea why that might happen. No. Just All it did was give itself away. Yeah. I'm it, sure they would have landed and had done with it. I wonder what it attacked that them. Been. I wonder if it were... Um, I remember with... Um, oh, what was the opening Peter Capaldi story now called? Oh, Deep, the, the, the... Deep Breath. Dinosaur, wasn't it? The Deep Breath. Yeah. yeah. And everybody wondered what on earth was the dinosaur doing there what's that good mm. and when he was asked i think um we went to see it um its premiere in cardiff they gave mm. um premiere there and somebody asked uh stephen moffat why then he said 
I just thought it'd be a good way to open a season, big dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought, well, of course, he has the budget and the technology to do that. Now, well, the, the, so you it, think it was an effects yeah, shot? You think I, it was? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Or uh, it could just have been to build build a bit of tension and build a bit of mystery and and put the TARDIS crew in a little bit of a little bit of peril. Yeah, I just just momentarily because they've only just recovered from the mind robber. Yeah, and the yeah. TARDIS was blown to pieces and reassembled itself. Luckily, by episode five. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure people thought it was all going to happen again as the missile closed in on them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it could link to that very nicely, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say um, Vaughan's death is um, spectacular in an audio way. And that it was mm. quite um, beautifully described, but again, very grisly. And quite, it is grisly, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I thought it was quite apt, the that electrical sort of um, effect going through mm-hmm. him, wasn't it? Which I thought, well, that, that seems to tie in well with his technology and mm. uh, cyber power and so forth. You yeah, know, so a nasty person deserves a nasty death, don't Absolutely. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. It's just desserts, isn't it, really? Just desserts, absolutely. <laughs> and just, they did, I'm glad they did, uh, yes, play that up on the audio. Because yeah. as I've said before, violence needs to be seen to have consequence. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'd just like to say, before we give this a score and um, end our chat about the invasion, the Doctor moment. Now, I loved mm-hmm. the the parts in here where um, whenever he was on the radio to um, to, to the Brigadier, of course the Brigadier oh, would say... Oh, down and out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said it yeah. up and down over and out yeah, yeah it was, seemed to get over and out he couldn't could he it was quite and you, you could hear the brigadier's frustration couldn't you it was quite uh... and of course that's that's a running gag that's been put into the book because i don't remember that happening on television i don't know if you noticed the other running gag in there which was when the unit personnel contact the russian airbase it's actually called nikortney Oh. Which is a reference to the actor Nicholas Courtney, who of course played the Brigadier. Oh, that's a nice touch. And, yeah. and I did notice that Ian Martyr included Nick Courtney Air Base in there four times. Really? I just didn't... to make sure everybody spotted it. Oh, mm. and and fool that I am, I didn't spot it, David, so thank <laughs> you for that. I did. It was, I, I, I did remember thinking, you know, Nick Courtney, oh, that's... Uh, oh. Well, went straight over my head airbase because in real life they towards the end of ian martyr's life they did become firm friends and they used to work the american convention circuit they used to have a double act where an elderly brigadier and an elderly harry sullivan were chatting away on a park bench rather like we're doing now really oh really (laughs) that's that's brilliant yes absolutely so they became firm friends and it was his sort of tribute i suppose but i suppose he found it amusing oh, as well yeah, it must have that sounds to pop fab. his friend's name in the text oh, do you know we, we're gonna have to do um an episode you, you've obviously been to a lot of um doctor who conventions in the past and i've been to some yes yeah some. we're gonna have to do um 
uh, a podcast where we can talk about um, right. some of those. And maybe <laughs> if people would like to hear that, they could um, email us at uh, doctorwhoontarget at gmail.com and let us know um, if you'd like to hear that. Um, sorry, that I went... That would be good. I, well, be... actually, talking about conventions and, and linking back to the invasion, shortly after the first convention I ever went to... There was another very, very small convention at the same venue at Imperial College in London. I don't even remember paying to get in. Right. But wow. that had a very, very good lineup. Right. And funny enough, we're talking about Cybermen, we're talking about the invasion. The guests were David Banks, the cyber leader, Michael Gilgareth, the cyber controller, and then of relevance to this chat, it had Nicholas Courtney. Oh. And it had Kevin Stoney. Oh. And it had Peter Halliday. Good God. And of course, my interactions with these people and my interactions with the story at that time in 19, I suppose it was 1986, stroke 87, my whole knowledge of the invasion had come from Ian Martyr's book. There was no video. There were no videos. There was no audio. No. Certainly was no DVD. No. And so I have something to thank Ian Martyr for because without his thorough telling of the story, yeah. I probably wouldn't have engaged in that convention quite as enjoyably as I did. Oh, <laughs> that sounds fab. That's something we're going to have to talk about in the future. But you've virtually got the whole cast of the invasion there, minus... We've got, we've got key people there. Of yeah, course, yeah. Patrick Troughton was still alive at that time, but yeah. sadly I think he must have been washing his hair that day or oh. something. But he wasn't there. No, he did do. He just didn't do um, conventions in this country. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Sadly, I never saw him. But, um, oh, but yes, happy days, happy days, and I'd gladly talk about conventions that I've attended. Well, that would be great. at another time. Yeah, yeah we we could do a special for that. That would we be great, actually. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I think all that's left for us to do is to score it, really. Um, oh, I would like to mention, first of all, um, I, you, you were interested in the technical um, presentation. Well, um, I am interested in that, what, yes. What did you think, think, David? Well, I'm going to risk controversy here. Oh, right. Because, okay. because I know, firstly, because I know you're a fan of the music in this story, yeah. the way it accents dramatic moments in the story. But... One thing that I would say is I felt that the technical presentation on the audio was a little bit heavy-handed in places. Ah. And one of the obvious places where that happens is right at the start on disc one where the TARDIS lands in a field of cows. Oh, yes. I mean, those, those cows are so vocal, you'd swear that they had their own voice agent <laughs> who was earning 10% on their performance because <laughs> they do not shut up. They don't. <laughs> and and it's, yeah. it's just, little, and, you know, you, so you've got that at one extreme. Yes, luckily, yeah. when they turn up again on disc five, they've toned it down somewhat. Yeah. But um, you had that extreme where, where the sound was almost intrusive and took you out away from the words, which I don't like. Yes. And then other bits of the audio where you perhaps could have done with louder noise, say gunfire, um, exchange of shots, yeah. seemed to me to be a bit, little bit feeble. Oh. I don't know, a little bit un under 
yeah. undercooked. So there's a little. So I, I think from my overall score, when we get round to scoring, I am going to have to dock it a point. Right. right. For for disappointing technical presentation in places. I don't know if you want to come back at me over that. Rank, no, no. I, I overall, I, I agree with you with the cows, um, because it's right at the beginning of the disc, and um, I was a little bit lost for the moment because I right. thought myself, what. What's going on here? Are these cows going to make um, some sort of dramatic point? But they're not. They're just there, aren't they? They're, they're just, just they're just part of the texture, yeah, sound yeah. picture that the person responsible is painting. But I think that it's done better on other audios. Yeah, I have yes. to say yeah. it is done more more subtly and appropriately on other audios. Which is not to say that this audio is a bad one. No, no. It's just to say I I think. A bit of quality control could have kicked in <laughs> when they heard it back. Well, I will say, yeah, I, I agree with you with some of those effects there. Um, they are they do take you out of the story a little they bit. Do. But I do love the the music they have on there, which she says um, sort of accents the action. Mm. It, it's very much like the Twelfth Doctor's theme, and I rather like right. it. Right. Well, I did. Funny enough, I did. I did. Um, revisit it based on what you said when we spoke off mic and yes i do see that now do you? yeah yeah right with that yeah so i i like that part but as you say i i can certainly agree that sometimes it does take you out a little bit mm. with the uh mm. you know with with the, with the moon you know that's uh well that's a bit much yes anyway whether whether you're Listeners agree with me or not, I think I'm going to have to deduct at least one point for. Oh, that's such a pity. So, from, so from David, the overall story, but it's yeah. it's okay because I am going to give the whole package of this audio seven point five. Oh, seven point five. So that's a, that's I... a high score. I did enjoy it. It's well worth owning. Oh, fabulous. And I can only reiterate that, and I urge people to buy it. It's fabulous. And um, I'm actually going to go a bit higher and give it 8.5. Right. Yeah, okay. because... I would have given it that, but for the sound effects. Oh, well, <laughs> that's okay. I mean... If, but having if... announced that it was going to lose a point, I, I couldn't very well... No. You've got to stick by your yeah. principles. You have to do that. But okay. I do feel it's one of those rare ones that... Um, I've gone to and the audio book and the target book, which is based on, of course, has has made me dig out the old DVD oh, and yes. to see it again. So I think if it does that, it's done a good job. Uh, it certainly has ticked all the boxes, hasn't it? Yeah. And it so, is a very, very good and mature piece of writing for the target range. And it is extremely well delivered. Yes. In performance by David Troughton, particularly it's on great. this audio. Absolutely. And um, I'd like to say thank you for David for joining us. And I think, um, David, next time we're going to be looking at a particular John Pertwee story. Would you like to say which one it is? Yes, I, I, with pleasure. We'll be looking at The Claws of Axos, which is read by Captain Mike Yates, an actor called Richard Franklin, which your listeners will be familiar with, or who your listeners will be familiar with. The Claws of Axos. Is what we'll be looking at next. Excellent, that's fantastic. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's Dr. Who on Target, or email us at Doctor Who on Target at gmail.com. 
That's the end of this episode and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners.